Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, in the 64th session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we conclude the last debate and set out, armed to the teeth and ready to throw down upon the plains of Daggerlad. And by the way, we finish Book 5 of The Lord of the Rings. A lot to discuss tonight, but before we get into it, I want to make good on a promise that I made in last week's session. Meanwhile in Middle-earth, what's up with the elves and the dwarves? Why aren't the elves and the dwarves here? Why aren't they aiding in the breaking of the siege of Minas Tirith? Why aren't they aiding with the, the host of the west as it travels east to confront Sauron at Moranon? Where are they all? Well, we'll begin by revisiting one of the few pieces of concrete information we have received about the war thus far further north. We're going to get some more of this by the time that we get into the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, but for now we've had, well, few references to things that are recurring elsewhere in Middle-earth. Let's take a look at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, just to go all the way back to the end of Fellowship of the Ring, with Frodo climbing Amon Hen and being granted a vision of the unfolding war. At first he could see little. He seemed to be in a world of mist in which there were only shadows. The ring was upon him. Then, here and there, the mist gave way, and he saw many visions, small and clear as if they were under his eyes upon a table, and yet remote. There was no sound, only bright, living images. The world seemed to have shrunk and fallen silent. He was sitting upon the seat of seeing on Amon Hen, the hill of the eye of the man of Numenor. Eastward, he looked into wide, uncharted lands, nameless plains and forests unexplored. Northward, he looked, and the great river, the great river excuse me, lay like a ribbon beneath him, and the misty mountains stood small and hard as broken teeth. Westward he looked, and saw the broad pastures of Rohan, and Orthanc, the pinnacle of Isengard, like a black spike. Southward he looked, and below his very feet the great river curled like a toppling wave and plunged over the falls of Roros into a foaming pit. A glimmering rainbow played upon the fume. And Ithir Anduin he saw, the mighty delta of the river, and myriad of seabirds whirling like white dust in the sun, and beneath them a green and silver sea rippling in endless lines. But everywhere he looked, he saw the signs of war." The misty mountains were crawling like anthills. Orcs were issuing out of a thousand holes. Under the boughs of Mirkwood there was a deadly strife of elves and men and fell beasts. The land of the Beornings was aflame. A cloud was over Moria. Smoke rose on the borders of Lorien. Horsemen were galloping on the grass of Rohan. Wolves poured from Isengard. From the havens of Harad, ships of war put out to sea, and out of the east men were moving endlessly. Swordsmen, spearmen, bowmen upon horses, chariots of chieftains and laden wains. All the power of the Dark Lord was in motion. Then turning south again, he beheld Minas Tirith. Far away it seemed, and beautiful, white-walled, many-towered, proud and fair upon its mountain seat. Its battlements glittered with steel, and its turrets were bright with many banners. Hope leapt in his heart. But against Minas Tirith was set another fortress, greater and more strong. Thither eastward, unwilling, his eye was drawn. It passed the ruined bridges of Osgiliath, the grinning gates of Minas Morgul and the haunted mountains, and it looked upon Gorgoroth, the valley of terror in the land of Mordor. Darkness lay there under the sun. Fire glowed amid the smoke. Mount Doom was burning and a great reek rising. Then at last his gaze was held. Wall upon wall, battlement upon battlement, black, immeasurably strong, mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant, he saw it. Baradur, fortress of Sauron. All hope left him. This is right before the contest for Frodo's will. You remember the eye and the voice, the eye of Sauron and the voice of, spoilers, Gandalf, urging him to take off the ring, you fool. This is our best glimpse so far of the landscape of Middle-earth and what is happening upon it. Yes, there is a pitched battle now for Gondor. There is a pitched battle at Minas Tirith. Yes, the great host has passed the grinning gates of Minas Morgul and passed through Osgiliath and taken Caer Andros and challenged the, the Pelennor itself, challenged even the great gate of Minas Tirith itself. But there are other wars in other places. 
I suppose the first thing that we should note in terms of the, the battles faced by the elves and the dwarves is how few elves and dwarves there are now in this part of the world. The estimated numbers at the Battle of Five Armies at the end of The Hobbit are... Not exactly insignificant, but also not exactly overwhelming. Thranduil fielded perhaps a thousand elves during that battle, along with 500 dwarves of Dian's folk and two or three thousand men of Lake Town. We don't know how many fell, but probably a significant number, and neither elves nor dwarves reproduce quickly. So we are looking, in particular with regard to the elves, we are looking at the last bastions of elven power in Middle-earth, Lothlorien, and Thranduil's kingdom in Mirkwood, the Woodland Realm in Mirkwood, and of course, Rivendell. As of the beginning of the War of the Ring, Sauron has three main forces north of Mordor. The orcs of the Misty Mountains that we see here. The Misty Mountains were crawling like anthills. Orcs were issuing out of a thousand holes. So he has those orcs. He also has the orcs of Dol Guldur in southern Mirkwood. You know, the old fortress of the Necromancer there in southern Mirkwood. And then he has another force of Easterlings marching from the east toward Mirkwood in order to join forces with the orcs. He launched, therefore, Two assaults, one against Lothlorien itself and the other against the woodland realm of Thranduil. The thought was that the orcs would keep Lothlorien busy, the orcs of the Misty Mountains would keep Lothlorien busy along with some of the orcs of Dol Guldur, while the main force from Dol Guldur marched northeast, assaulted Thranduil, and took care of business, cleaned house, killed the elves, just destroyed that last bastion of power. And the plan was that the orcs marching northeast from Dol Guldur would meet with the Easterlings marching out of the east and they would crush Thranduil between them. But that didn't exactly happen, because the dwarves of Erebor and the men of Dale joined together to repel the Easterlings, and Sauron isn't able to finish Thranduil off in time to march in full strength upon Lothlorien. All of which is to say that the men and the dwarves and the elves of the Northern Wilds and of Mirkwood are pretty busy right now, and none could be spared to travel south, even if any had been asked, which seems unlikely given Denethor's pride and despair. Yes, he sends for his allies in Rohan, but there is no word of him sending word to any of the other kingdoms, any other sources of power that might help defend Minas Tirith. And now, of course, in the aftermath of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, there just isn't time. There's no time to wait. It's something like 350 miles from Moranon, from the Black Gate to Dol Guldur, but 650 miles from Moranon to Erebor. That's something like three days' ride for Gandalf on Shadowfax, right? The swiftest thing in the world that, that, that we have open to. I suppose the eagles are probably faster. But, but Gandalf on Shadowfax is pretty much as fast as anyone in Middle-earth can travel, and it would take him three days to reach Dol Guldur, six days to reach Erebor, and marching an army back would take weeks, even if the wars in the north were over, which they are most resolutely not. Let's take a look at the timeline. This is going to be of particular interest to our reading this week. So we can see that on March 11th, Gollum visits Shelob, Denethor sends Faramir to Osgiliath, then we get the first assault on Lothlorien. So the elves of Lothlorien, I suppose, would be a better bet than the elves of Mirkwood in terms of defending Minas Tirith, but they have their hands full too. The first assault comes on March the 11th. That's the day after the Dawnless Day. This is the day when Gollum slinks away from Frodo and Sam to visit with Shelob, and Denethor orders Faramir back to Osgiliath, as I said. The second assault on Lothlorien comes on March the 15th, the same day as the Battle of the Palinor Fields, the same day that Thranduil repels the orcs sent to the Woodland Realm from Dol Guldur. In six days, as we begin this reading, that's four Four days from the setting out of the army from Minas Tirith, Lothlorien will again be attacked by orcs of the Misty Mountains. They too have their hands full. 
On March 17th, here you can see, by the way, uh, the day after the last debate, the day before the Army of Minas Tirith sets out, so kind of bracketed by the two chapters that we're going to discuss tonight, the dwarves of Erebor and the men of Dale will fight the Battle of Dale, which will see the deaths of both King Bard of Dale and King Dian of Erebor. Erebor will then be besieged until March the 25th, the same day as the Battle of Moranon at the end of this week's reading, at which point things will change. No spoilers from the end of this book. Things will change on March the 25th. As I say, that is where we conclude this week's reading. This is indicative of the power of Sauron and the breadth of the power of Sauron. Yes, he is bringing titanic force to bear, a truly, uh, a truly dominating force against Minas Tirith, but that is not the full extent of his power. The, the forces, the host of Mordor that he sent forth for the Battle of the Pelennor Fields is but a fraction of his power. This emphasizes how fully wise Gandalf is when he says in the context of last week's reading, hey, we can't win. There is no hope for a martial victory whatsoever. Our only hope is Frodo. All we can do is strive to distract the eye of Sauron and hope that Frodo can accomplish his very, very unlikely task unscathed. So that is what is going on. Uh, Glomenson is recommending The Atlas of Middle-Earth is excellent at figuring out the timing and distance issues in The Lord of the Rings. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Becca saying, there are just so many moving parts. Getting more than one human to do anything on schedule is hard. Thousands is a pipe dream. Yeah, it's very, very true. Um, the scale of this war, the entire War of the Ring, not just the stuff that's oriented around Minas Tirith, not just the... Of course, you'll note here... Um, where is it? Here, March 12th, Gollum leads Frodo into Shelob's lair and the Ents defeat orcs in northern Rohan. By the way, some of the orcs of the Misty Mountains are coming down into northern Rohan where they are met by Treebeard and the Ents who, yeah, take care of business as Ents are wont to do, I suppose, particularly when faced with the depredations of orcs. So there are multiple battlefronts going on here. Never mind the Corsairs of Umber down in the south that have recently been taken care of by Aragorn and, uh, and the Army of the Dead, of course. But there are multiple fronts. There are multiple battles and multiple minor wars that are encompassed by the War of the Ring. This is huge, and it is bewildering, right? It is dizzying for us in our relatively locked down and focused perspective, but this does give us some insight into what Denethor was going through, right? Denethor is looking out upon the world, and he's seeing all of this. He's apprehending exactly what is happening in Mirkwood, exactly what is happening in, in, on the fringes of Lothlorien, exactly what is happening in northern Rohan, what is happening in the south. Well, I say exactly what is happening. He is seeing part of what is happening. He is seeing the fact of what is happening without necessarily the context to understand it. That's all part of Sauron's influence over the Palantir, of course, and leads to Denethor's despair and the final fate of, of the steward of, of Gondor. But nonetheless, we can get a sense of the scale of this battle. What I will say is that Professor Tolkien prepared this material scrupulously. If you look in, his, if you look at his schema, if we'll get an opportunity to talk about this when we get to the appendices a little bit, but you can also delve into the accompanying material, which Christopher Tolkien has prepared so carefully and edited so beautifully into the History of Middle-earth 12-volume series. You can look at all of that to see how painstaking Professor Tolkien was about the movement of arms and armies, the movement of the various forces in Middle-earth. So there's no way that we can get a sudden new catastrophe 
catastrophic arrival of Thranduil and the forces of Mirkwood, right? It's not as though he's going to suddenly show up with 20,000 elves that can turn the tide of battle, because that's just not a part of Tolkien's apprehension of Middle-earth here. Let's, um, yeah, so Angela asking, how did Tolkien himself keep it all straight? Rhetorical question. Yeah, uh, by p working painstakingly and revising his schema over and over and over again. If you look at the volumes of, uh, of the history of Middle-earth, you will see a great deal of work put into calculating exactly when everyone is everywhere. And I dare say that there probably are some oversights in that schema, but there are none that stand out to me. I've never had, reading Professor Tolkien's work, the problems that I've had watching the Peter Jackson adaptations, for example, where time and distance are completely malleable and completely uh, completely changeable and, and, and fungible in order to elicit the desired narrative effect. He changes a lot of, of the movement, the behind-the-scenes movement of the various forces in the context of The Lord of the Rings, and does so with a kind of you know, casual disregard, does so with a kind of half-hearted shrug toward the internal inconsistency of his fictional world in a way that Professor Tolkien absolutely didn't. With all of that said, and with yeah, the last few seasons of Game of Thrones, says Glowenson, yeah, yes, not, not that, certainly. Let's get into then our reading for tonight. We have one slide left from Chapter 9, The Last Debate. Let's get into it. As you'll see here, by the way, before we change slides, uh, the last debate takes place on March the 16th. The host of the West marches from Minas Tirith on March the 18th. So this is where we are right now. And I have excised from this timeline any mention of Frodo and Sam besides the uh, stuff that we've already seen. So no spoilers for uh, book six of The Lord of the Rings as we move forward. This then was the end of the debate of the Lords, that they should set forth on the second morning from that day with seven thousands, if these might be found, and the great part of this force should be on foot because of the evil lands into which they would go. Aragorn should find some two thousands of those that he had gathered to him in the south, but Imrahil should find three and a half thousands, and Aomer five hundreds of the Rohirrim who were unhorsed but themselves war-worthy, and he himself should lead five hundreds of his best riders on horse, and another company of five hundred horse there should be, among which should ride the sons of Elrond with the Dúnedain and the knights of Dol Amroth all told 6,000 foot and a 1,000 horse. But the main strength of the Rohirrim that remained horsed and able to fight some 3,000 under the command of Elfhelm should waylay the west road against the enemy that was in Anorian. And at once swift riders were sent out to gather what news they could northwards and eastwards from Asgiliath and the road to Minas Morgul. And when they had reckoned up all their strength and taken thought for the journeys they should make and the roads they should choose, Imrahil suddenly laughed aloud. Surely, he cried, this is the greatest jest in all the history of Gondor, that we should ride with seven thousands, scarce as many as the vanguard of its armies in the days of its power, to assail the mountains and the impenetrable gate of the Black Land? Summon a child threaten a mail-clad knight with a bow of string and green willow. If the Dark Lord knows so much as you say, Mithrandir, will he not rather smile than fear, and with his little finger crush us like a fly that tries to sting him? No, he will try to trap the fly and take the sting, said Gandalf. And there are names among us that are worth more than a thousand mail-clad knights apiece. No, he will not smile. Neither shall we, said Aragorn. If this be jest, then it is too bitter for laughter. Nay, it is the last move in a great jeopardy, and for one side or the other it will bring the end of the game. Then he drew Anduril and held it up glittering in the sun. You shall not be sheathed again until the last battle is fought, he said. So this is the gamble. This is the Hail Mary Pass. 7,000 men, 6,000 men afoot and 1,000 a horse, setting out from Minas Tirith to 
distract the eye of Sauron. With the remnant of the Rohiric forces, 3,000 men under the command of Alfhelm, passing northwest into Honorian in order to protect the western flank of the army that is marching to the Black Gate. Remember, the orcs and the men were already setting forth across Rohan. So the Ents have taken care of business up north, though that is never mentioned in this part of the book. There's no reason for us to know that in this part of the book. So the men of Rohan are going out to protect the western flank of the army marching east through Osgiliath and then north up the road from the crossroads. 7,000 men. This is the gamble. This is the gambit, if you prefer. This is the last great risk of the Third Age. This is... I keep saying Hail Mary pass, but you know what? That's about as close as we can get. There's almost no chance that this is going to be victorious. There's absolutely no chance that this will be militarily victorious. There is no hope at all that the host of Minas Tirith, the host of the West, is going to take the Black Gate. They are, are overwhelmed by orders of magnitude in their desire to even go to Moranon, let alone besiege the Black Gate and force entry into Mordor. This is just the distraction. And it is easy, I think, as we transition into Book 6 to talk about the great and dauntless heroism of Frodo and of Sam. But it is critically important that we recognize the dauntless heroism of these men of the West. Passing here into certain death, certain death. There is no hope for their survival if it comes to uh, if it comes to all-out battle, and yet they're going to do it anyway because this is the path that they have chosen. These are the roads that they have selected for their passage north. Um, interesting use of the word jeopardy from Aragorn here. If this be jested, it is too bitter for laughter. Nay, it is the last move in a great jeopardy. Uh, jeopardy in its modern sense, meaning danger or risk, is attested from the late 14th century, but from around 1300, more or less, we have the word jeopardy, meaning... Uh, a lost game. Actually, what it means is is a a, a wash, a, a coin flip, a, a game that is in the balance so perfectly that the outcome cannot be judged at all. Coming from the old French, jeu parti, a lost game. That is uh, that is the origin of the word jeopardy. So Aragorn is kind of. Well, I guess Professor Tolkien is playing a little etymological game with us here, of course, because it is a danger and it is a risk. It is jeopardy in the modern sense, by which I mean the 14th century or the late 14th century sense. But the early 14th century sense, meaning a game that is in the balance, is absolutely opposite to Aragorn picking his words very carefully here. I do love Imrahil laughing aloud and finding the absurdity in this. Surely this is the greatest jest in the history of Gondor that we should ride with 7,000, scarce as many as the vanguard of its army in the days of its power— 7,000 people? Are you kidding me? That was just the advance force of the established army of Gondor back in the day. That was the advance force of the kind of army that would have marched in the Battle of the Last Alliance. This is, this is lunacy. So might a child threaten a mail-clad knight with a bow of string and green willow. A bow of string and green willow, right? A, a semblance of a bow, a, a child's toy, but not actually a workable, functioning bow in any way. If the Dark Lord knows so much as you say, Mithrandir, will he not rather smile than fear and with his little finger crush us like a fly that tries to sting him? And Gandalf says, no, for two reasons. First off, look at us. Look at who we are. We've got Gandalf, and we've got we've got Prince Imrahil, and we've got Eomer, and we've got Aragorn, for goodness sake, any one of whom are worth a thousand mail-clad knights. Legolas, Gimli, probably, right? We could credit them too. We have we have great people with us, and that is worth something. We have heroes of old with us, and that is worth something. But much more importantly, no. That is not his plan. His plan is not to fall upon us and destroy us and run the risk of routing us. He's going to try and trap us. He's going to try and ensnare us and make us manageable and then take the sting. The sting here, obviously, the ring. The ring which Sauron believes Aragorn possesses right 
now. Which is why Sauron is presumably also going to be pretty cautious. He's not going to commit an equal force against, or as we'll see, he is going to commit uh, an equal force against the host of the West, but he's going to do so in a feint. He's going to test their power. He's going to try and lure out the ring, as it were. But he wants the ring. He's well aware that if Aragorn is in possession of the ring, then actually an army of 7,000 marching against Moranon is more than enough to take care of business. Actually, if Aragorn has the ring, one man marching against Moranon would be enough to take care of business. With all of that said then, let's push into chapter 10 here. Joseph saying he's afraid Aragorn will swallow the ring. Gross. Yeah, that is kind of gross, actually. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, yes, as, as Gildarts points out, it's quality, not quantity. That does seem to be part of the argument here, too. Yes. Let's get into chapter 10, then. The Black Gate opens two days later. Two days later, the army of the West was all assembled on the Pelennor. The host of orcs and Easterlings had turned back out of Honorian, but harried and scattered by the Rohirrim, they had broken and fled with little fighting toward Kyr Andros. And with that threat destroyed and a new strength arriving out of the south, the city was as well manned as might be. Scouts reported that no enemies remained upon the roads east as far as the crossroads of the fallen king. All now was ready for the last throw. Legolas and Gimli were to ride, to, uh, ride again together in the company of Aragorn and Gandalf, who went in the van with the Dúnedain and the sons of Elrond. But Merry, to his shame, was not to go with them. You are not fit for such a journey, said Aragorn, but do not be ashamed. If you do no more in this war, you have already earned great honor. Peregrine shall go and represent the Shire folk. And do not grudge him his chance of peril, for though he has done as well as his fortune allowed him, he is yet to match your deed. But in truth, all now are in like danger. Though it may be our part to find a bitter end before the gate of Mordor, if we do so, then you will come also to a last stand, either here or wherever the black tide overtakes you. Farewell. And so, despondently, Mary now stood and watched the mustering of the army. Burgil was with him, and he also was downcast, for his father was to march leading a company of the men of the city. He could not rejoin the guard until his case was judged. In that same company, Pippin was also to go as a soldier of Gondor. Mary could see him not far off, a small but upright figure among the tall men of Minas Tirith. So the orcs and the men of Sauron have been routed from Anorian, and the forces of the Rohirrim under the command of Elfhelm have returned to Minas Tirith in order to garrison the city with the remaining guard of Gondor here. Those who cannot serve in the guard of Gondor or those who were chosen not to serve in the guard of Gondor, including both uh, Berigond and Pippin here, are also to march with Aragorn, but not Merry. Merry is going to have to stay behind, and this is a bitter pill for Merry, clearly. But look at Aragorn's words here. He is doing that completely honest, kingly thing that figures of authority so often do in The Lord of the Rings. Peregrine shall go and represent the Shire folk, and do not grudge him his chance of peril, for though he has done as well as his fortune allowed him, he has yet to match your deed. Hey, Mary, you're done. You've done enough. Pippin hasn't. So we're going to give him a chance. We're going to give him a shot. We're going to give this, this young rookie a chance to really prove himself on the field of battle. That's why Pippin is going with us. But you, you've done enough. And also you are not yet fit to travel. You are not yet healed sufficiently to accompany the army. But in truth, he says, changing tone, changing tact here. In truth, all now are in like danger. Though it may be our part to find a bitter end before the gate of Mordor. If we do so, then you will also come to a last stand, either here or wherever the black tide overtakes you. Farewell. Don't worry, Mary, that you are going to be left out of dark deeds or that you are going to be, and this is the heart of it, I think, that you are going to be unable to stand in the defense of that which you love. If we fail, then you're going to fall. The black tide will come and it will find you and it will find you here or it will find you in Edoras or it will find you in the Shire, but it will eventually find you. This is, as it says there at the end of the first paragraph, our last throw. 
And then Mary looks out. Burgle was with him. He was also downcast for his father was to march, leading a company of the men of the city. Of course, Berigond can't serve in the guard. He has to go and serve in the army instead because, well, he murdered the porter. That's an evocative word. That's a powerful word, but it does seem to be the appropriate word. It was necessary and will, as we've been told, grieve him to the end of his days, but it was still something that he did. He cannot now return to the guard until he has faced trial. So instead, he's going to go lead a company of men. He's going to go and fight in this great battle that is coming. In that same company, Pippin was also to go as a soldier of Gondor. Mary could see him not far off, a small but upright figure among the tall men of Minas Tirith. Pippin, out of his element and yet in his element. He is going, yes, this diminutive figure among the great men of of Gondor, but he is standing upright and he is going, crucially, as a soldier of Gondor. Pippin has... Pippin is still holding to his oath. He is still holding to the oath that he pledged Denethor, even if that oath was recanted by Denethor himself. So now we are marching out. Now we are uh, now we are ready to go. We are ready to get on the road, and we are ready to uh, to fight the battles that lay in our immediate future. Yeah, as Shane says, that should be your new email sign off. Good luck in your last stand wherever the black tide takes you. Farewell. Yeah, that's it. Fair. I mean, okay. Farewell for Aragorn for Professor Tolkien was less a less a common piece bit of courtesy than it, it it was it was more directly meaningful to professor tolkien even in the span of the early 20th century and and certainly more in the medieval frame that he is referencing here than it is to us farewell might might as well be goodbye i mean goodbye and farewell actually have very similar meanings if you stop and you actually think about it but he is urging mary farewell it's gonna be you know it, it may not be okay, actually, but fair. I, I wish you good fairing, is, is what he's saying there. So let's look ahead, and uh, we pass through Osgiliath, we cross the river, we do a great deal of traveling, and we get to the crossroads. Then Aragorn sent trumpeters at each of the four roads that ran, ran into the ring of trees, and they blew a great fanfare, and the heralds cried out, The lords of Gondor have returned, and all this land that is theirs they take back! The hideous orc head that was set upon the carven figure was cast down and broken in pieces, and the old king's head was raised and set in its place once more, still crowned with white and golden flowers, and men laboured to wash and pare away the foul scrolls that orcs had put upon the stone. Now, in their debate, some had counselled that Minas Morgul should first be assailed, and if they might take it, it should be utterly destroyed. And maybe, said Imrahil, the road that leads thence to the pass above will prove an easier way of assault upon the Dark Lord than his northern gate." But against this, Gandalf had spoken urgently, because of the evil that dwelt in the valley where the minds of living men would turn to madness and horror, and because also of the news that Faramir had brought. For if the ring-bearer had indeed attempted that way, then above all they should not draw the eye of Mordor thither. So the next day, when the main host came up, they set a strong guard upon the crossroads to make some defense if Mordor should send a force over the Morgul Pass, or should bring more men up from the south. For that guard they chose mostly archers who knew the ways of Athelion and would lie hid in the woods and slopes of the meeting of the ways. But Gandalf and Aragorn rode with the vanguard to the entrance of Morgul Vale and looked on the evil city. It was dark and lifeless, for the orcs and lesser creatures of Mordor that had dwelt there had been destroyed in battle, and the Nazgul were abroad. Yet the air of the valley was heavy with fear and enmity, Then they broke the evil bridge and set red flames in the noisome fields and departed. So you'll remember, I'm sure, talking about the fallen king when Frodo and Sam, in the company of Gollum, of course, arrive at the crossroads and they see this great statue that has been desecrated by orcs. It has been beheaded and the king now, the king's head now lies abandoned some distance from the body and has been replaced with this crude simulacrum of an orcish head. And now we are 
restoring the pride of Gondor. We are retaking Ithilien. This is what the uh, the heralds cry out. The lords of Gondor have returned and all this land that is theirs they take back. Remember, even Faramir wouldn't go to the crossroads. He wouldn't cross that road and, and progress any closer to Mordor. That was, even at that point, immediately prior to the outbreak of open hostility beyond the, the jurisdiction, I suppose, of the men of Minas Tirith. But now... Now we are reclaiming it, and we are symbolizing that reclamation with the restoration of the head, crucially still garlanded in white and golden flowers, still crowned in the white and golden flowers that had grown over the king's head after it had fallen. And you'll remember that as we were discussing that when Frodo and Sam witnessed it, the the, hmm, the turning of evil to good effect, I suppose, this common feature of the Lord of the Rings, this theme that we've discussed time and time again since we very, since we began this, this journey. Had the king's head not fallen, then it would not have been garlanded with flowers. It would not have been a symbol of hope. Presumably the flowers would not have crept up the statue of the great king and, and given him this new crown of, of, of leaves and petals. But now the king's head is restored and the flowers remain. Those flowers will probably wither and die, which we might also see as a metaphor for what comes next for men. Partly because of our, you know, extra textual knowledge of the greater history of Middle Earth, right? We know that we're about to progress into the Fourth Age, and we know that the Fourth Age is the Age of Man, and we know that the great men of Numenor are going to decline, and the great men of Gondor are going to decline, and the great men of everywhere actually are going to decline. Men are going to become less than they were. That's the great arcing sweep of history. But we're already primed within the frame of this book, of, of the last chapter and this chapter, to anticipate that. Remember the conversation between Gimli and Legolas, that men begin things and then falter and things are left undone. And Legolas says, yes, but then they come up again and do greater things. They, they begin greater things in the wake of those earlier accomplishments, those earlier incomplete achievements. Well, we're kind of seeing that here, right? The old king's head was raised and set in its place once more, still crowned with white and golden flowers. Still crowned with the flowers, those flowers will die. They have presumably been uprooted because they can't survive, right? The vines couldn't grow up, the, the plants, the bushes, whatever they are, couldn't grow up the statue of the king in the first place. So presumably they have just been uprooted. So the flowers are there and bright for now, but ultimately they too will falter. That is the history of Middle-earth. That is the path of the, of the fourth age. And men labored to wash and pare away all the foul scrolls the orcs had put upon the stone. The pare away there is hard. They're literally scratching out the, uh, the graffiti that has been left behind by the orcs. But in the scratching out, they are damaging the statue that was there first. This statue is always going to bear the scars of this war, of, of the conquering of Athelion in the first place, right? This isn't just about the War of the Ring, of course. This is about the taking of Athelion by the forces of Minas Morgul a thousand years ago. This has been contested land for the longest time, and now it is being reclaimed, but the, st the scars will still be born. They can't just be washed away. They also have to be pared away. We can be cleansed and renewed, yes, but scars will still be born in the aftermath. Now, in their debate says the narrative voice, throwing us back to the debate that we had in the last chapter, to something that we had not previously mentioned. Some had counseled that Minas Morgul should first be assailed, and if they might take it, it should be utterly destroyed. And maybe, said Imrahil, oh boisterous Imrahil, the road that leads thence to the pass above will prove an easier way of assault upon the Dark Lord than his northern gate? Um... Yes. Yes, a thousand percent. Yes, Imrahil, you are absolutely right. That is some good tactical work right there. And no one disputes that. No one disputes that actually the logical assault here is against Minas Morgul. Tear it down. It is empty. 
because the host of Minas Morgul was the host that fell on the Pelennor field and has now been in large part destroyed, but what remains has been routed completely. And the Nazgul, as we know, are abroad. They are not home right now. They are out doing evil in the world. So actually taking Minas Morgul, probably not that hard. And then destroying it utterly, probably also not that hard, but we can't because that is the road we know thanks to, uh, thanks to uh, Faramir's council, we know that that is the road that Frodo and Sam took. So we can't attract the attention of the eye to Minas Morgul at all. We have to instead go and confront Moran, and this is part of the distraction. But also, against this, Gandalf had spoken urgently because of the evil that dwelt in the valley where the minds of living men would turn to madness and horror. Now you'll remember Frodo and Sam feeling uncomfortable as they move through as they move through the valley, but hobbits are made of sterner stuff. Taking men into that valley would be a really bad idea. The hobbits survived, well, I suppose by chance, if chance you call it, and also by their natural hobbitishness. So instead, they're going to march north. They leave a guard here at the crossroads uh, to make some defense. If Mordor should send a force over the Morgul Pass or should bring more men up from the south, they chose archers who knew the ways of Athelion and would lie hid in the woods and slopes of the Meeting of the Ways. So they're stationing behind them a force of archers who know Athelion and can protect the rear of the host of the west as they move north, just in case. Again, really sound military tactics. And when you look at, when you look at the way that Tolkien... I was going to say writes about battles, but I think that is incomplete. When you look at the way that Tolkien considers war and warfare, he is always interested in a strong tactical sense. He knew enough of military strategy to be able to identify what was a sound and precautious plan. You know, that is absolutely where we are here. But Gandalf and Aragorn rode with the vanguard to the entrance of Morgul Vale and looked on the evil city. So they're stationing their archers around the crossroads. That's going to, they're going to watch the road behind them. That's wise. That's good. But Gandalf... Aragorn and the vanguard, some number of their troops, some elite force, you know, the, the, the first, the tip of the spear, I suppose, ride up to the entrance of Morgul Vale and look on the evil city. It was dark and lifeless for the orcs and lesser creatures of Mordor that had dwelt there had been destroyed in battle and the Nazgul were abroad. Oh, actually, yeah, this would be a great target for us, if not for a couple of things. Yet the air of the valley was heavy with fear and enmity. Then they broke the evil bridge and set red flames in the noisome fields and departed. They just scourge it. They shatter the bridge. Remember that bridge that is carven in forms human and bestial, right? The one appearance of the word human in the Lord of the Rings that Frodo and Sam noted as they uh, as they crossed the bridge themselves. And they set light to the fields and then they come back. Yeah, we have ha- hindered you. We have hampered you if you decide to cross from the Morgul Vale into Ithilien once more. But that's about all that we can do. And we cleanse with fire and then move north. Ever and anon, Gandalf let blow the trumpets, and the heralds would cry, The lords of Gondor are come! Let all leave this land or yield them up! But Imrahil said, Say not the lords of Gondor, say the king Elisar, for that is true even though he is not yet sat upon the throne, and it will give the enemy more thought if the heralds use that name. And thereafter, thrice a day, the heralds proclaimed the coming of the king Elisar, but none answered the challenge. Nonetheless, though they marched in seeming peace, the hearts of all the army, from the highest to the lowest, were downcast, and with every mile that they went north, foreboding of evil grew heavier on them. It was near the end of the second day of their march from the crossroads that they first met any offer of battle, for a strong force of orcs and easterlings attempted to take their leading companies in an ambush, and that was in the very place where Faramir had waylaid the men of Harad, and the road went in a deep cutting through an outthrust in the eastward hills. But the captains of the west were well warned by their scouts, skilled men from Hanathanun led by Moblong, so the ambush, its, the ambush was itself trapped. For horsemen went wide about westward and came upon the flank of the enemy and from behind, and they were destroyed or driven east into the hills." But the victory did little to enhearten the captains. 
It is but a feint, said Aragorn, and its chief purpose, I deem, was rather to draw us on by a false guess of our enemy's weakness than to do us much hurt yet. And from that evening onward the Nazgul came and followed every move of the army. They still flew high and out of sight of all save Legolas, and yet their presence could be felt as a deepening of shadow and a dimming of the sun. And though the ringwraiths did not yet stoop low upon their foes and were silent, uttering no cry, the dread of them could not be shaken off. Imrahil demonstrating his skill here as the best propagandist in all of Middle-earth. Like, he could definitely start the uh, Dol Amroth Public Relations Company after the war is over and uh, lean heavy on his marketing skill here because he is absolutely right. The heralds are going forth. Everyone and on Gandalf let blow the trumpets and the heralds would cry, the lords of Gondor come, let all leave this land or yield them up. That is a, a typical challenge. That is actually a kind of formulaic challenge. That is an observation of the march of an army. They are warning their foes that they are coming. Let all leave this land or yield them up. But Imrahil said, say not the lords of Gondor, say the king Elessar. For that is true, even though he is not yet sat upon the throne and it would give the enemy more thought if the heralds use that name. Give the enemy here. He is using the capital E enemy here, meaning Sauron. Sauron, but I don't think that he's meaning just Sauron. Can Sauron at this point be more afraid of Aragorn coming? No, probably not. He's using this metonymically to refer to the host arrayed against them. Is Sauron going to be more troubled if the heralds are proclaiming, proclaiming the coming of King Elessar? No, but the orcs and the men of the east and the south are. That is a very different thing. The lords of Gondor coming against them are one thing. Still probably bad news, but you know, we fought the lords of Gondor before but the coming of the king, this is something new. Great PR from, uh, from Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth there. So they keep marching in, in peace when they are assaulted by an ambush. Luckily, their scouts had already anticipated the ambush. They dispatch their cavalry out to the west to loop around and to hit the ambush from the flank and from the rear, thereby destroying this force of orcs and men set against them. But this victory did little to enhearten the captains. The use of the, the archaic form enhearten there, absolutely gorgeous. I love it when Tolkien gets in this register. But the victory did little to enhearten the captains. It is but a feint, said Aragorn, and its chief purpose, I deem, was rather to draw us on by a false guess of our enemy's weakness than to do much hurt yet. This was not even a terribly good ambush. This, this ambush was not intended to destroy them. We know for sure that the ambush was not intended to destroy them because it only falls upon the leading companies. Sauron has enough troops in this region. He has enough, enough men and orcs under his command to pitch so many of them into the battle that the entire host of the West could be utterly destroyed. House of the West is 7,000, maybe 6,000 by now if you count scouts and you count the, maybe six and a half if you count the forces left behind at the crossroads. Sauron can field 60,000, 160,000, 600,000, who knows by now. He could destroy this host if he wanted to, but this is all part of the trap. So the ambush is supposed to come against the host of the West and fail. It is supposed to falter, and Aragorn seems to intuit this correctly. No, this is a feint. He wants us to believe that his forces are weak so that we hurry on more recklessly, so that we travel more swiftly up this road and walk more readily into the trap that he is setting for us. From this point on, though, we get to one of my favorite moments of Aragorn's condescension that we get in the entire book. And it's kind of easy to miss because it feels so pragmatic, but it's absolutely gorgeous. Jackie is saying here, uh, the returning king has legend and prophecy and myth on his side to make him even more intimidating too. Absolutely right. That's 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 completely the power of the name. King Alisar, right? That is exactly it. Sauron already knows that Aragorn is coming and he already knows who Aragorn is. And he already knows that Aragorn has, has drawn Anduril and sworn that it shall never be sheathed until the last battle. And he believes that he is bearing 
getting the One Ring, so Sauron is pretty much up to date on all that is happening with the host of the West. But the orcs and men arrayed against them are not. And that power of prophecy, that power of myth, the returning king, this is about as big as it gets. This is going to cause their enemies to doubt and to question, which, again, isn't ultimately going to have any military consequence, isn't ultimately going to secure a military victory that would otherwise be in doubt, but it is going to buy them some time. And it is going to attract the attention, not just of Sauron. It's going to pin Sauron's attention on them. Absolutely, his attention is probably already pinned pretty uh, pretty assiduously on them at this point. But it is also going to pin the attention of all of the orcs and men arrayed in the field against them. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Erica is rejoining us after a uh, after a computer glitch. Erica, I'm so sorry. Computers are terrible, aren't they? Like, computers are just terrible. I do apologize for that, Erica. Seastar saying, I was told that mass carnage would result from my ending a poem line or two with or, but that's what we that's what we want anyway. Or what are we talking about here, Seastar? Are you telling us a story here in the chat? I missed the first part of that. I do apologize. Um, yes, good. All right. Let's get into then uh, this great moment of uh, of condescension, of, of kingliness and regality from Aragorn, from King Elisar. So time and the hopeless journey wore on. Upon the fourth day from the crossroads and the sixth from Minas Tirith, they came at last to the end of the living lands and began to pass into the desolation that lay before the gates of the pass of Kidith Gorgor, and they could descry the marshes and the desert that stretched north and west to the Emin Mool. So desolate were those places and so deep the horror that lay on them that some of the host were unmanned, and they could neither walk nor ride further north. Aragorn looked at them. And there was pity in his eyes rather than wrath, for these were young men from Rohan, from Westfold, far away, or husband, husbandmen, husbandmen, excuse me, from Lasarnach. And to them Mordor had been from childhood a name of evil and yet unreal, a legend that had no part in their simple life. And now they walked like men in a hideous dream made true, and they understood not this war nor why fate should lead them to such a pass. Go said Aragorn. But keep what honor you may and do not run, and there is a task which you may attempt and, be, and so be not wholly shamed. Take your way southwest till you come to Kyrandros, and if that is still held by enemies as I think, then retake it if you can and hold it to the last in defense of Gondor and Rohan. Then some being shamed by his mercy overcame their fear and went on, and the others took new hope, hearing of a manful deed within their measure that they could turn to and they departed. And so since many men had already been left at the crossroads, it was with less than six thousands that the captains of the West came at last to challenge the Black Gate and the might of Mordor. So here they arrive at the, the crook of the road here, I suppose, looking north to the desolation, looking northwest to the dead marshes, seeing this, this evil landscape ahead of them, the evil that has lain on this landscape since time immeasurable, right? Uh, the gates of the pass of Kirith Gorgor, they could descry the marshes in the desert that stretched north and west of the MMO. So desolate were these places and so deep the horror that lay on them that some of the hosts were unmanned and they could neither walk nor ride further north. Unmanned here meaning made fearful, made cowardly almost. Aragorn looked at them and there was pity in his eyes rather than wrath, for these were young men from Rohan from Westfield far away or husbandmen from Lasarnach, and to them Mordor had been from childhood a name of evil and yet unreal. Aragorn is looking at these men who are incapable of walking or riding further north, and the reason that we acknowledge the possibility of wrath here is that they are betraying their duty. Their duty is to follow the king, to serve the king, to fight and to die for the king. These are sworn men, every single one of them. He hasn't levied troops from nearby farmsteads. He hasn't brought up civilians and given them pitchforks. These are soldiers, and they aren't fulfilling their oath. Aragorn would be absolutely within his rights, 
in medieval terms, to look upon these men with wrath. He could have an example made of them. He could have them stripped of rank and stripped of name and incarcerated or, or cast out from the army or something, but he doesn't. Here he recognizes the fear that lays upon their hearts and he shows them pity. He shows them kindness. Go, said Aragorn, but keep what honor you may and do not run. Okay, so first off, he just says go. This is too hard for you. You aren't accustomed to this. You didn't expect this. You don't know what to do with this. You, I don't know, one-seventh almost of my army. Probably slightly less than that, depending on how many men were left at the crossroads. But at most, one-seventh of my army. You weren't up for this. I understand that. Go, but keep what honor you may and do not run. Do not flee battle. Choose to turn away from it and do so with my blessing. But do not rout. Do not run. That would be a betrayal of your honor. That would be desolation, right? You would be abandoning your post at that point. Do not run and keep your honor. And there is a task which you may attempt, and so be not wholly shamed. And if you're going to go, there is something that you can do. Take your way southwest till you come to Kaya Andros. Remember the Kaya Andros, the, the, the ship-shaped uh, island in the middle of the Anduin? Go to Kaya Andros, and if it's still held by its enemies, as I think, then retake it if you can, and hold it to the last in defense of Gondor and Rohan. Okay, you can go. But if you're going to go, think on this. There is a task that you can accomplish. There is something you can do to aid us without facing the might of the Black Gate, without coming into the desolation and facing Mordor directly. You can go to Kyra Andros and retake it from our enemies. You have the power to do that. Then some being shamed by his mercy overcame their fear and went on. Because he is so merciful, because he is so kind, some who would not have previously proceeded found within them a new strength. The mercy of the king has made them more courageous. He has not commanded their loyalty, but elicited their loyalty. He has demonstrated these kingly virtues of compassion and of pity and of mercy, and so he is more worthy of being followed than he was before. So some go on, but others took new hope, hearing of a manful deed within their that they could turn to and they departed. So some do actually take off, but you'll note there's no reference there in that last paragraph too. And some others just kind of slipped away back down the crossroads and went and found the nearest pub and got royally drunk for the rest of the war. There's no mention of that. Some stiffen their resolve and stick with the army. Some turn away and go to Kyra Andros, still fulfilling in part their oath, still fulfilling in part the command of their king and still holding on to some semblance, if not entirely the fullest measure of their honor, but still not being dishonored here in the, in the face of the, the desolation of the plains of Dagarlad at this point. And so, since many men had already left at the crossroads, and it, 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 excuse me, and so, since many men had already been left at the crossroads, it was with less than six thousands that the captains of the West came at last to challenge the Black Gate and the might of Mordor. And you can imagine Prince Emeril rolling his eyes here and kind of chuckling, hey, remember when I said that assaulting the Black Gate with seven thousand troops was insane? Ah, six thousand. Okay. You can understand it. He probably came up with a really great name for like the military operation, right? He's probably got like pamphlets and posters by now, really leaning into his chief propagandist role for the host of the West. Like I can imagine him uh, giving some some really great uh, Henry V Shakespearean battle speeches here, just ready to go, ready to throw down, inspiring the man. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Um, Becca saying, okay, but some went to the pub and got drunk, right? I mean, probably, you know... It, maybe, maybe, maybe some did, but they're definitely not mentioned. So if there were, then there were, you know, few of note and none of name, perhaps. I think that's probably where we are here. But yes, it does seem as though the, uh, it does seem as though the, um, the, uh, the effect of Aragorn's speech is, 
is a good one and isn't anchored. You'll note here, this is a crucial distinction. It is not anchored in the authority of the king, but rather in the kindness of the king. That is how he turns the hearts of his men. A king can command, but not just command. Tom is asking if they managed to take Kyra Andros. They do, in fact, manage to take Kyra Andros. Yes, and it is a significant advantage for uh, for the host of the West. Yeah, good. Okay, onward to Moranon. We have, let me see, one, two, three, four, five slides left, and I'm only halfway through time. This is perfect. I mean, some of the slides are pretty important, but we'll uh, we'll make it through our entire reading tonight. Let's see what we can do. The two vast iron doors of the Black Gate under its frowning arch were fast closed. Upon the battlement, nothing could be seen. All was silent but watchful. They were come to the last end of their folly, and stood forlorn and chill in the grey light of early day before towers and walls which their army could not assault with hope, not even if it had brought thither engines of great power, and the enemy had no more force than would suffice for the manning of the gate and wall alone. Yet they knew that all the hills and rocks about the Moranon were filled with hidden foes, and the shadowy defile beyond was bored and tunneled by teeming broods of evil things. And as they stood, they saw all the Nazgul gathered together, hovering above the towers of the teeth like vultures, and they knew that they were watched. But still, the enemy made no sign. No choice was left them but to play their part to its end. Therefore Aragorn now set the host in such array as could best be contrived, and they were drawn up on two great hills of blasted stone and earth that orcs had piled in years of labor. Before them toward Mordor lay uh, excuse me, before them towards Mordor lay like a moat a great mire of reeking mud and foul smelling pools. When all was ordered, the captains rode forth toward the black gate with a great guard of horsemen and the banner and heralds and trumpeters. There was Gandalf as chief herald, and Aragorn with the sons of Elrond, and Aramur of Rohan and Imrahil, and Legolas, and Gimli, and Peregrine were bidden to go also, so that all the enemies of Mordor should have a witness. They came within cry of the Moranon, and unfurled the banner, and blew upon their trumpets, and the heralds stood out and sent their voices up over the battlement of Mordor. Come forth, they cried. Let the lord of the black land come forth. Justice shall be done upon him, for wrongfully he has made war upon Gondor and wrested its lands. Therefore the king of Gondor demands that he should atone for his evils, and depart then forever. Come forth. So they arrive at the Black Gate, and all is silent and all is watchful, save for the whirling of the Nazgul overhead, circling like vultures, presumably still beyond the sight of everyone else here gathered except Legolas, who can see them, and is just kind of glancing nervously at the sky every couple... Yep, still there. Yep, so... Still there. You know how you can feel fear right now? You know how you're kind of feeling a weird despair and wishing that you knew the Expecto Patronum charm? Yeah, Nazgul. Nazgul, still there. So much worse than seagulls, right? Legolas thought he had it bad when he could see gulls wheeling in the sky above him, and maybe in the long term that is true, but now Nazgul. I think I will take seagulls over Nazgul most days of the week. They were come at last to the end of their folly and stood forlorn and chill in the grey light of early day before towers and walls which their army could not assault with hope, not even if it had brought their engines of great power. So there is no hope of assaulting this, this, uh, this gate. There's no hope of assaulting Moranon and being victorious, not even if they had brought forth engines of great power. If they had brought siege engines with them, which they absolutely didn't, even if they had siege engines, they still wouldn't have hope. Even if the entire massed force of Sauron in this place at this time is sufficient just to man the barricade, they still have no hope. They are so utterly overwhelmed that you can almost forgive Prince Imrahil for laughing about it, I guess. Still the enemy made no sign. No choice was left to them but to play their part to its end. Recognizing that this is A, futile, and B, performative, they have no choice but to 
marshal their ranks for war. They have to draw themselves up uh, to set the host in such a way as could best be contrived. They were drawn up on two great hills of blasted stone and earth that orcs had piled in years of labor. Before them, towards Mordor, lay like a moat, a great mire of reeking mud and foul-smelling pools. This is literally the worst place that you could draw up your army in order to assault Moranon, because between here and there, there is a swamp. There is a mire. Those of you who have studied your... Scottish history might remember the Battle of Culloden, for example, where hardly a reeking swamp, but just just a moorland, just a boggy moorland prevented the assault of the Scots against the English line and led to the absolutely ruinous destruction of the Highland forces at the Battle of Culloden in 1745. This is not great military tactics, you guys, but it is the only tactic that is open to them. They have to play their part. Therefore, Aragorn has set the host in such a way as could best be contrived. This isn't a plan. But it might look like a plan from a distance, and that's about all we've got. When all was ordered, the captains rode forth toward the black gate with a great guard of horsemen and the banner, and the banner, the banner, the singular banner, the banner wrought by, uh, um, <laughs> why can't I remember her name? Wrought by Arwen. Forgive me, it's been a long day. Wrought by Arwen back in Rivendell, the, the banner that uh, Haber had carried for so long. A guard of horsemen and the banner and heralds and trumpeters. There was Gandalf as chief herald and Aragorn with the sons of Elrond and Eomer of Rohan and Imrahil and Legolas and Gimli and Peregrine were... So, okay, let's break this down a little bit. There was Gandalf as chief herald and Aragorn with the sons of Elrond and Eomer of Rohan and Imrahil. Wow, these are the captains of the West. These are the men of authority here in in command of this army. Semicolon and Legolas and Gimli and and Peregrine were bidden to go also so that all the enemies of Mordor should have a witness. They are there specifically as representatives of their race. A dwarf, an elf, a hobbit. You should all witness this as enemies of Mordor, as being representative of the natural antipathy that exists between your people and the fell host of Mordor. You should be there too for this last parley. They came within cry of the Moranon and unfurled the banner and blew upon their trumpets and the heralds stood forth and sent their voices up over the battlement of Mordor. Come forth, let the lord of the black land come forth. Justice shall be done upon him for wrongfully he has made war uh, upon Gondor and wrested its lands. Therefore, okay, Sauron, you made war on Gondor, and you made war on Gondor unjustly, and you seized its lands, and now we have to have a reckoning. Therefore, the king of Gondor demands that he... Again, king of Gondor, king Elessar there, referencing the king rather than just the lords of Gondor. Therefore, the king of Gondor demands that he should atone for his evils and depart then forever. We want reparation, and then you're out of here. Then that is it. This is the end of the war. This is the offer that you are being given. But it turns out that Sauron has a, <laughs> Joseph Shannon here saying, hey guys, can you get the flag my girlfriend made for me? Uh, it's, it's the black one. I unfurled it at the Stone of Eric and no one could see it. Behold, ah, it was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, let's, uh, let's look at the response then because Sauron is not yet done. Sauron has a counter offer. This gives us, of course, the title of last week's session, which shows how optimistic I was trying to get through all the slides that I prepared last week. In my defense, I did say at the beginning that there was no way we would get through all 20 slides. We did sterling work, but here we are. There was a long silence, and from wall and gate no cry or sound was heard in answer. But Sauron had already laid his plans, and he had a mind first to play these mice cruelly before he struck to kill. So it was that even as the captains were about to turn away, the silence was broken suddenly. There came a long rolling of great drums like thunder in the mountains, and then a braying of horns that shook the very stones and stunned men's ears. And thereupon the door of the black and thereupon the door of the black gate was thrown open with a great clang, and out of it came an embassy from the dark tower. 
At its head there rode a tall and evil shape, mounted upon a black horse, if horse it was, for it was huge and hideous, and its face was a frightful mask, more like a skull than a living head, and in the sockets of its eyes and in its nostrils there burned a flame. The rider was robed all in black, and black was his lofty helm, yet this was no ringwraith, but a living man. The lieutenant of the Tower of Baradur he was, and his name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it, and he said, I am the mouth of Sauron. But it is told that he was a renegade, who came of the race of those that are named the Black Numenorians, for they established their dwellings in Middle-earth during the years of Sauron's domination, and they worshipped him, being enamoured of evil knowledge. And he entered the service of the Dark Tower when it first rose again, and because of his cunning he grew ever higher in his lord's favour, and he learned great sorcery, and knew much of the mind of Sauron, and he was more cruel than any orc. He it was that now rode out, and with him came only a small company of black harness soldiery and a single banner, black but bearing on it in red the evil eye. Now halting a few paces before the captains of the west, he looked them up and down and laughed. Is there anyone in this rout with authority to treat with me, he asked, or indeed with wit to understand me? Not thou, at least, he mocked, turning to Aragorn with scorn. It needs more to make a king than a piece of elvish glass or a rabble such as this. Why, any brigand of the hills can show a good following. Aragorn said not in answer. But he took the other's eye and held it, and for a moment they strove thus, but soon, though Aragorn did not stir nor move hand to weapon, the other quailed and gave back as if menaced with a blow. I am a herald and ambassador, and may not be assailed, he cried. Where such laws hold, said Gandalf, it is also the custom for ambassadors to use less insolence. But no one has threatened you. You have naught to fear from us until your errand is done. But unless your master has come to new wisdom, then with all his servants you will be in great peril. Got to admire the, the theatricality excuse me, of Sauron here, right? Sauron had already laid his plans and he had a mind first to play these mice cruelly before he struck to kill. Oh, he's just going to entertain himself and entertain his forces here before he strikes that definitive ruinous blow against the host of the West. So it was that even as the captains were about to turn away, he waits, who knows how long, in silence, in eerie and ominous silence, with the Nazgul spinning overhead and the great weight and despair of their presence afflicting the men of the, the host of the West. He waits until the captains are about to turn away and then sends forth his emissary. The lieutenant of the Tower of Baradur he was, and his name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it, and he said, I am the mouth of Sauron. Which is interesting. Aragorn notes back at the beginning of the Two Towers, you remember when we find the S-Rune? Aragorn notes at the beginning of the Two Towers that Sauron does not allow his name to be, quote, spelt or spoken. The mouth of Sauron apparently has special dispensation here. This is... Gosh, I should have looked this up. To the best of my memory, to the best of my recollection, this is the only time in The Lord of the Rings that a servant of Sauron refers to Sauron as Sauron. I think that's true. Sauron, of course, used far less often in The Lord of the Rings than you might expect. We're kind of getting... It's not quite a, uh, a Voldemort phenomenon, but it's, it's not unlike that. 
So he comes forth, this, uh, this renegade who came of that race that are named the Black Numenorians, for they established their dwellings in Middle-earth during the years of Sauron's domination, and they worshipped him, being enamored of evil knowledge. These are the, the remnant of the king's man of Numenor, right? Civil war takes Numenor as some portion of the population falls under the sway of Sauron. This is back in the Second Age, before, obviously before the fall of Numenor, right? This is before our Pharazon has launched his ruinous campaign against Valinor. And the world is cracked and Numenor is drowned. Some number of the Numenorians actually ally themselves with Sauron, who is still in a kind of fair-seeming guise. They want longevity. They want immortality, as all men who turn to corruption want, I suppose. I guess not all men, but the vast majority of men who turn to the darkness, who turn to the shadow, do it because they want immortality. They want what they perceive to be the gift of elves. So these black Numenorians go forth from Numenor and colonize the south of Middle-earth at that period, and he is one of them. Black here, crucially, not a reference to skin color. This is He is not by any measure or by any metric dark-skinned or black-skinned. That is not uh, a part of his description. Black here being used in the way that black is used almost exclusively throughout the Lord of the Rings, not to indicate color, but to indicate evil, to indicate shadow, to indicate the influence of Sauron and, and ill forces. So we get this uh, this brilliant, again, as we've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, right? Tolkien elevates his language here. We get this, uh, this, para, this paratactical structure. Uh, but it is told that he was a renegade, so even there, but it was told that he was a renegade who came of the race of those that are named the Black Numenorians, semicolon, for they established their dwellings in Middle-earth during the years of Sauron's do- domination and worshipped him, being enamored of evil knowledge, period, and he entered the service of the Dark Tower when it first rose again. Because of his cunning, he grew ever higher in the Lord's favor, semicolon, and he learned great sorcery and he knew much of the mind of, mind of Sauron, semicolon, and he was more cruel than any orc. Great paratactical structure, this great rush of detail as the language is again elevated. So he rides out alone with his black harnessed soldiery, with his banner of the evil eye, and laughs at Aragorn. Is there anyone in this route with authority to treat with me? Is there anyone here who has the authority in the West to meet with an emissary of Sauron? Uh, And then, more specifically, or indeed with wit to understand me, not thou, at least. Hey, is there anyone here who's smart enough or empowered enough to, like strike a deal or even to hear my words. Well, obviously not you, Elfstone. Obviously not you upon your breast, an emerald. Like, you're not much. It, it needs more to make a king than a piece of elvish glass, again, referring to, to the Elfstone, or a rabble such as this by any brigand of the hills can show as good a following. Yeah, it's 6,000 men. There probably are brigands in the hills who can muster a significant portion of that, at least. Aragorn said not in answer... This is such a great moment. Aragorn said not in answer, but he took the other's eye and held it. And for a moment they strove thus. But soon, though Aragorn did not stir nor move hand to weapon, the other quailed and gave back as if menaced with the blow. I am a herald and ambassador and may not be assailed, he cried. Aragorn doesn't do a thing but hold his eye. But Aragorn here, crucially, is uncloaked. This is the power of... Well, not just the king, specifically in this instance, the king, but not just kings. This is the power of a great man. By force of will, by right of rule, Aragorn is capable of of dominating the will of the lieutenant of Barad-dûr, right? Aragorn is very likely, if you're compiling a list of like the top five most powerful people in Middle-earth at this point, Aragorn's probably going to make the cut. He is capable of utterly dominating the will of this, this direct servant of Sauron, who knows the mind of Sauron, uh, knew much of the mind of Sauron, more cruel than any orc, right? 
Aragorn can dominate his will without moving a muscle. And he quails. He actually takes a step back as if fearful of a blow. And Gandalf intercedes. Of course, Gandalf as chief herald intercedes. It's not appropriate for Aragorn to speak a word at this point. Aragorn is not, in fact, going to treat with an emissary of the enemy. Aragorn is the king. His herald is going to treat with the emissary of the enemy. Where such laws hold, said Gandalf, it is also the custom for ambassadors to use less insolence. Yeah, you want to lean on your diplomatic community here at Mouth of Sauron? You want to lean on the idea that, that ambassadors are to be left unmolested and unperturbed? Well, okay. You should probably watch your mouth, though. You should probably watch your language. You should probably not insult our king right here in front of God and everybody. But no one has threatened you. I don't know what you're talking about. No one has threatened you. No one has moved a muscle. You have not to fear from us until your errand is done. But unless your master has come to new wisdom, then with all his servants, you will be in great peril. Unless you're coming out here to surrender then you are in danger from us. Just not right now, I suppose. Okay, let me see here. Uh, yes, Erica says, a stare down from the old Western movies. I was waiting for a tumbleweed to roll past. That's fantastic. Good, good, good. Oh, Corporeal saying, also, Alistair, never lose your way and fall to the American pronunciation of lieutenant. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of honored. I, I will admit that I, use, uh, that I use lieutenant and lieutenant pretty interchangeably. The reason, by the way, that there's an alternate pronunciation there is that before it came into American English, the spelling had shifted. So it is spelled lieutenant. So pronouncing it lieutenant makes a lot of sense. But originally, when it came from the old French, the U was not a U, it was a V. So it was lieutenant. It was, it was a harder sound. So when that came into British English, it was left as lieutenant. That's, uh, that's the reason for that alternate pronunciation there. Good. Erica saying, okay, but who brings an army to the gate of the enemy just to surrender? It's like, nice try, right? This is, this is posturing. This is theatricality. Why are we doing this? Why is the lieutenant of Barodor sent out? Why is the mouth of Sauron sent out at all? Because Sauron wants to play with these mice before he kills them. He's just toying with an insignificant foe at this point. And also, of course, perhaps uh, drawing them in even closer to array the final movement of his trap. Yeah, good. Let's, uh, <laughs> Joseph saying, I have to say, there isn't really a lot of good faith negotiation going on in this chapter. That's very fair, Joseph, right? This is not Diplomacy 101, right? You should not join the Diplomatic Corps just from a reading in, in this passage. Yeah, good. All right, let's uh, move on to, uh, this is a tough moment, you guys. And I remember... As I've said before, the first time that I read The Lord of the Rings, the first handful of times that I was reading The Lord of the Rings, I was here for Frodo and Sam. I was here for The Hobbits. I was here for The Ring. I was so invested in their story that I freely admit I skimmed quite a lot of book three of The Lord of the Rings. I skimmed quite a lot of book five of The Lord of the Rings, actually. I just wanted to get back to Frodo and Sam. But I do remember reading this the very first time that I read The Lord of the Rings. And I was already aware that we had jumped the timeline and that we were past the point in which uh, past the, the end of book four, right past the end of the two towers. So I knew that Frodo and Sam were in dire straits inside Mordor at this point. And this was enormously powerful and affecting for me. The messenger put these aside and there to the wonder and dismay of all the captains, he held up first the short sword that Sam had carried and next the gray cloak with an elven brooch and last the, co the coat of mithril mail that Frodo had worn wrapped in his tattered garments. A blackness came before their eyes, and it seemed to them in a moment of silence that the, word, the world stood still, but their hearts were dead and their last hope gone. Pippin, who stood, be stood behind Prince Imrahil, excuse me, sprang forward with a cry of grief. Silence, said Gandalf sternly, thrusting him back, but the messenger laughed aloud. So you have yet another of these imps with you, he cried. What use you find in them, I cannot guess, but to send them as spies into Mordor is beyond even your accustomed folly. Still, I thank him, for it is plain that this brat at least has seen these tokens before, and it would be vain for you to deny them now. 
I do not wish to deny them, said Gandalf. Indeed, I know them all and all their history, and despite your scorn, foul mouth of Sauron, you cannot say as much. But why do you bring them here? Dwarf, coat, elf, cloak, blade of the downfallen west, and spy from the little, little rat land of the Shire. Nay, do not start, we know it well. Here are the marks of a conspiracy. Now maybe he that bore these things was a creature that you would not grieve to lose, and maybe otherwise. One dear to you, perhaps. If so, take swift counsel with what little wit is left to you, for Sauron does not love spies, and what his fate shall be depends now on your choice. The presentation of the belongings of Frodo and Sam. Crucially, Frodo and Sam, even though the Mouth of Sauron acknowledges only a single spy has been captured. He seems to suggest, in fact, that only one hobbit has been found therein. So you have yet another of those imps with you. What use you find in them, I cannot guess, but to send them as spies into Mordor is beyond even your accustomed folly. So they captured a spy. A spy from the little rat land of the Shire, and they do not start. We know it well. Here are the marks of conspiracy. Now, maybe he that bore these things was a creature that you would not grieve to lose, and maybe otherwise. He that bore these things? He that bore a cloak of Lorien and also Sam's sword and Frodo's mithril coat? Ah, the game is not yet done. There is still hope, even in this instance, and Gandalf is clearly wise enough to perceive that, thrusting Pippin back, even as he tries to, to cry out, dwarf coat, elf cloak, blade of the downfallen west. That is the second choice, honestly, for the, the uh, title for this week's session, because it is just so, so very good. Dwarf coat, Elf cloak, blade of the downfallen west. You'll remember, of course, that the, the blade that Sam is car uh, that Sam was carrying previously to this is the barrow blade, right? It is the same mark of weapon as was consumed by the death of the Witch King of Angmar after Mary struck his near fatal or fatal. Like I'm still having email discussions about this, and I still don't know where I come down on it. I still the beat when we discuss the destruction of the blade that says that no other blade. Uh, wielded by anyone so mighty could have, have struck so bitter a blow does very strongly seem to indicate that Mary is, yeah, responsible for for at least the disenchanting of the Witch King of Angmar, right? He, he, he we've talked about this, but I, I definitely can't spend 10 minutes uh, rehashing all of this, but yes, yes, very, very powerful. This, a dark moment, a dark turn. Here on the plain of Daggerlad before the gates of, of Moranon, to see these possessions of Frodo and Sam so presented is pretty tough. We're, of course, going to find out more about this side of the story as we move into, into book six. Let's get on to the giving of terms, what it is that the mouth of Sauron demands. These are the terms, said the messenger, and smiled as he eyed them one by one. The rabble of Gondor and its deluded allies shall withdraw at once beyond the Anduin, first taking oaths never again to assail Sauron the Great in arms, open or secret. All lands east of the Anduin shall be Sauron's forever, solely. West of the Anduin, as far as the Misty Mountains and the Gap of Rohan, shall be tributary to Mordor, and men there shall bear no weapons, and shall have leave to, but shall have leave to govern their own affairs." but they shall help to rebuild Isengard, which they have wantonly destroyed, and that shall be Sauron's, and there his lieutenant shall dwell, not Saruman, but one more worthy of trust. Looking in the messenger's eyes, they read his thought. He was to be that lieutenant, and gather all that remained of the West under his sway. He would be their tyrant, and they his slaves. But Gandalf said, 
This is much to demand for the delivery of one servant, that your master should receive in exchange what he must else fight many a war to gain, or has the field of Gondor destroyed his hope in war, so that he falls to haggling? And if indeed we rated this prisoner so high, what surety have we that Sauron, the base master of treachery, will keep his part? Where is this prisoner? Let him be brought forth and yielded to us, and then we will consider these demands." It seemed then to Gandalf, intent, watching him as a man engaged in fencing with a deadly foe, that for the taking of a breath the messenger was at a loss, yet swiftly he laughed again. "'Do not bandy words in your insolence with the mouth of Sauron!' he cried. "'Surety you crave! Sauron gives none! If you sue for his clemency, then you must first do his bidding. These are his terms. Take them, or leave them!' "'These we will take,' said Gandalf suddenly. He cast aside his cloak, and a white light shone forth like a sword in that black place. Before his upraised hand the foul messenger recoiled, and Gandalf coming seized and took from him the tokens, coat, cloak, and sword. "'These we will take in memory of our friend,' he cried. "'But as for your terms, we reject them utterly. Get you gone, for your embassy is over and death is near to you. We did not come here to waste words in treating with Sauron, faithless and accursed, still less with one of his slaves. Be gone!' This is, to take an approach that we don't usually take here in There and Back Again, this is one of the passages that is often referenced by those who seek to draw that line of allegory, that, that connective thread of allegory between the Lord of the Rings and the First World War and the Second World War. Because this, of course, is not dissimilar from some of the treaties that were formed in the wake of the Great War, and then again in the wake of the Second World War. The rabble of Gondor and its deluded allies shall withdraw at once beyond the Anduin, first taking oaths never again to assail Sauron the Great in arms, open or secret. All right, first, first, you get off the plains of Dagalad. You get out of Athelion, you go back across the Anduin. You cede all of this land to us utterly in perpetuity. Then, everything that is west between the Misty Mountains and the Gap of Rohan, including, parenthetically, Minas Tirith, like that would count for Minas Tirith too, they are going to pay tribute to Mordor, and no man there will be allowed to hold a weapon. Also, you're going to go and rebuild Isengard, which you tore down so carelessly. Like, like you got to go and put your toys away. you got to go clear up after yourself. You're going to go and rebuild Isengard, and there, Sauron's lieutenant shall rule. Me. Hooray. Not Saruman, obviously. Still got our problems with that guy. Still going to definitely have words with him. That's some unfinished business. That's quite near the top of my to-do list for uh, the day after this war is over. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to look forward to looking at that to-do list from the comfort of Orthanc right there in the middle of Isengard, which is, of course, going to be a new power in the West. He was to be that lieutenant and gather all that remained of the West under his sway. He would be their tyrant and they his slaves. And Gandalf, of course, questions him. For one servant, you want us to give up the entire war. You want us to cede everything that Sauron wants in exchange for one prisoner? Has Sauron gotten tired of war? Has, he, has his nose been bloodied by the Battle of the Pelennor Fields? Is he perhaps thinking now that war is maybe not the best way of getting what he wants? And if we rate that prisoner so highly, what surety have we that Sauron, the base master of treachery, will keep his part? Oh, we're just supposed to believe that you have this hobbit spy, this this uh, this envoy from the West in Mordor, that you have him safely kept away and that he definitely hasn't been tortured to death so that you can get more information about us. Yeah, you bring him forth and then we'll consider it. We're just, Gandalf, obviously buying time because as he acknowledges here at the end of this passage, he has no intention of, of ceding to uh, the, the whims and wills of the mouth of Sauron. It seemed then to Gandalf, intent, watching him as a man engaged in fencing with a deadly foe, that for the taking of a breath the messenger was at a loss. 
that is so beautifully constructed. It's archaically constructed. It's again in that higher register, but it's gorgeous. Gandalf is watching him intently. Again, a battle of, of wits here. He had the battle of will with, uh, with, with Aragorn and lost. Now he's having the battle of wits with Gandalf and he's losing again. For a second, the black Numenorean, the mouth of Sauron, cannot draw breath. He's so stunned by this insolence. Are you kidding me? You're here to negotiate about the negotiation? Do not bandy words in your insolence with the mouth of Sauron. Surety you crave, Sauron gives none. If you sue for his clemency, then you must first do his bidding. These are his terms. Take them or leave them. These we will take, said Gandalf suddenly again literally uncloaking himself. He cast aside his cloak and a white light shone forth like a sword in that black in that black place. Before his upraised hand, the foul messenger recoiled and Gandalf coming seized and took from him the tokens, coat, cloak, and sword. He takes back the artifacts of the hobbits that he sent into Mordor, not knowing at this point whether there is any truth to the implication, to the inference here that uh, that Frodo and Sam have been at the very least caught and possibly killed already. He may be witnessing the death of all hope. The fact that it is Sam's sword and Frodo's mithril coat suggests that maybe, and of course the fact that the Mouth of Sauron is referring to a single hobbit, there may still be hope, but this is a very, very dark moment. So he reclaims these tokens and then dispatches the Mouth of Sauron from the field. And so, with just a few minutes here, um, Oh, let me see. I'm just uh, scrolling back through the chat. I wanted to... Uh... Jackie's saying, can we compare this to Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple too? Uh, yes, if we're talking about uh, that Jesus allegory that we discussed a little bit last week, allegory slash applicability that we discussed last week. Yes, this would be a, a powerful point of, of comparison there. Yeah, good, good. And C-Star quoting... The great, the legendary Granny Weatherwax. I haven't got time to bandy legs with you all day. <laughs> yep. There you go. A conversation between Granny Weatherwax and Gandalf would be very good. I mean, I, I like Archchancellor Ridcully, but he's he's not quite in the same uh, not quite in the same uh, league as Gandalf here. So with like 10 minutes left to go, let's get to our, well, actually our penultimate slide, because I do have a little extra bonus slide right at the end, a tiny little short thing, but we're going to talk about Pippin's Last Stand because this is it. Battle has come. The trap is triggered. The fell host of Mordor fall, on the, uh, fall upon the host of the West, and things look grim indeed. Pippin had bowed, crushed with horror, when he heard Gandalf reject the terms and doom Frodo to the torment of the tower. But he had mastered himself, and now he stood beside Barragond in the front rank of Gondor with Imrahil's man, for it seemed best to him to die soon and leave the bitter story of his life, since all was in ruin. I wish Mary was here. He heard himself saying, and quick thoughts raced through his mind, even as he watched the enemy come charging to the assault. Well, well, now, at any rate, I understand poor Denethor a little better. We might die together, Mary and I, but since die we must, why not? Well, he is not here. I hope he'll find an easier end. But now I must do my best. He drew his sword and looked at it, and the intertwining shapes of red and gold and the flowing characters of Numenor glinted like fire upon the blade. This was made for just such an hour, he thought. If only I could smite that foul messenger with it, then almost I could draw level with old Mary. Well, I'll smite some of this beastly brood before the end. I wish I could see cool sunlight and green grass again. Then even as he thought these things, the first assault crashed into them. The orcs, hindered by the mires that lay before the hills, halted and poured their arrows into the defending ranks. But through them there came striding up, roaring like beasts, a great company of hill trolls out of Gorgoroth, taller and broader than men they were, and they were clad only in close-fitting mesh of horny scales, or maybe that was their hideous hide. But they bore round bucklers, huge and black, and wielded heavy hammers in their knotted hands. Reckless they sprang into the pools and waded across, bellowing as they came. Like a storm they broke upon the line of the men of Gondor, and beat upon helm and head and arm and shield as smith 
smiths hewing the hot bending iron. At Pippin's side, Baragorn was stunned and overborne, and he fell, and the great troll chief that smote him down bent over him, reaching out a clutching claw, for these fell creatures would bite the throats of those they threw down. Then Pippin stabbed upwards, and the written blade of Westerness pierced through the hide and went deep into the vitals of the troll, and his black blood came gushing out. He toppled forward and came crashing down like a falling rock, burying those beneath him. Blackness and stench and crushing pain came upon Pippin, and his mind fell away into a great darkness. So it ends, as I guessed it would, his thought said, even as it fluttered away, and it laughed a little within him ere it fled. Almost gay it seemed to be casting off at last all doubt and care and fear. And then, even as it winged away into forgetfulness, it heard voices, and they seemed to be crying in some forgotten world far above, The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming! For one moment more, Pippin's thought hovered. Bilbo, it said. But no, that came in his tale long, long ago. This is my tale, and it has ended now. Goodbye. And his thought fled far away, and his eyes saw no more. Thus, Pippin's last stand. The heroism of Peregrine, son of Paladin, standing here in the front rank of the men of Gondor never fails to move me. He had mastered himself, and now he stood beside Baragond in the front rank of Gondor with Imrahil's men, for it seemed best to him to die soon and leave the bitter story of his life since all was in ruin. And as he thinks, all is in ruin, and I may as well die early rather than late, I may as well be in the front line. We're all going to die. I may as well be first, like it doesn't matter. I wish Mary was here, he heard himself saying, and quick thoughts raced through his mind even as he watched the enemy come charging to the assault. Well, 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 now at any rate, I understand poor Denethor a little better. Open question. Does Pippin understand Denethor better right now? It seems to me that he does not. It seems to me that he is, in fact, distinguishing himself from Denethor in literally every way that matters. I wish Mary was here. We might die together, Mary and I, and since die we must, why not? He's drawing that connection back to Denethor, right? Now I understand poor Denethor a little better. We might die together, Mary and I, and since die we must, why not? What is the crucial difference here? What is the crucial distinction between how Pippin is thinking of Mary and how Denethor was thinking of Faramir? That's the connection that we're drawing here. What is the distinction? Pippin isn't making the choice for Mary. Denethor made the choice for Faramir. That was what was evil. If Denethor had stood upon the battlements of Minas Tirith, or better yet, stood in the great gate of Minas Tirith and said, my son, stand by me in this our hour of darkest need, that would have been a noble thing. That would have been a courageous thing. Denethor making the choice for Faramir is the problem. Pippin is not... <laughs> I was going to say Pippin is not taking the right lesson from Denethor, but of course he absolutely is inadvertently, though he himself does not realize it, he absolutely is taking the right lesson from the whole Denethor situation. He's not making the choice for him. He wants Mary with him here at the final moment. That's completely natural. That may even be heroic, but it's not, it's not despairing the way that Denethor despaired. Well, as he is not here, I hope he'll find an easier end but now I must do my best. That, crucially, that line right there, but now I must do my best, that is what distinguishes Pippin from Denethor, absolutely. Yes, we can talk about striving to fight. We can talk about taking some of the beastly brood with him. We can even talk about wishing to see the grass again, right? We'll get to all of that in a moment. These are all points of, of, points of separation between, uh, between uh, Pippin and Denethor at this point, but the biggest one, the most important one, but now I must do my best. He's not giving in to despair. This is much more like Aomer when he sees the Corsairs coming up the Anduin, right? This is more like 
taking that last stand. This is arraying the, the, the spear wall around him and taking many as many of his enemy as he can with him. That is despairing. Yes, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of what is to come, but it isn't reductive. It isn't cowardly. It is still the performance of one's duty, the performance of one's most sacred duty. Pippin here is absolutely allying himself, aligning himself, finding himself in the company of Eomer, not Denethor. He drew his sword and looked at it, and the intertwining shapes of red and gold and the flowing characters of Numenor glinted like fire upon the blade. This was made for just such an hour, he thought, calling back to that discussion that we had of Mary's blade, of course, after the death of the Witch King of Angmar, when we get that uh, that account that the smith who forged it so long ago would have been glad that it had been put to such use. Of course, this blade was forged to fight the Nazgul and to fight the 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 representatives, the slaves, the minions of the, sh- uh, of the Shadow. This was made for just such an hour. If only I could smite that foul messenger with it, then almost I should draw level with old Mary. Well, I'll smite some of his beastly brood before the end. I wish I could see cool sunlight and green grass again. Pippin is expecting death, but he is not, crucially, fey at this point. Remember all the discussions we've had of of those characters who are fey momentarily and in an ongoing way through uh, through book five of the Lord of the Rings, Theoden and Eowyn and Eomer and, and so many others, right? People are fey. People get caught up in the bloodlust, right? They they sing as they slay. That's, that's a, a common feature of this kind of heroism. But at his heart, Pippin is still a hobbit. What does he want if he somehow had the ring at this point, if he had like the temptation of the one ring at this point, what would he wish for? Cool sunlight and green grass again. He wants life and he wants the world. And it's no coincidence either that this always, in part because he's looking at the blade, right? He's looking at the blade that was given to him by Tom Bombadil after they emerged from the barrows, right? He's looking at that sword in particular. And what is he wishing for? I wish I could see cool sunlight and green grass again. Remember when Tom Bombadil rescued them from the barrows and urged them to run naked upon the grass beneath the sun so that they could be restored and replenished and reconnected to the world as we, as we discussed way, way back when in the Fellowship of the Ring? That seems to be his impulse again. He's still yearning for life, even though he believes that death awaits him. Then the forces of Sauron come. Sauron doesn't even care about the tactics or the strategy of this engagement. He sends his orcs out first into the mire and they wallow in the mire because that's a really bad idea, it turns out. And if the host of the West had any great number of archers with them, you know, Legolas's bow, I'm sure, is singing at this point, picking off orcs that are wading through the mire. But then the trolls come. It is just the the overwhelming force of the, the host of Mordor at this point. A company of hill trolls out of Gorgoroth. Like a storm, they broke upon the Lion of Men of Gondor and beat upon helm and head and arm and shield as smiths hewing the hot bending iron. At Pippin's side, Baragond was stunned and overborne and he fell and the troll comes down. And Pippin not unlike Eowyn, right? Pippin, again, cleaving upwards into the troll's belly and uh, uh, deep into the vitals of the troll and his black blood came gushing out. He toppled forward and came crashing down like a falling rock, burying those beneath him, pinning Pippin as uh, as Theoden King was pinned under Snowmane, I suppose. And that's it. Blackness and stench and crushing pain came upon Pippin and his mind fell away into a great darkness. So it ends as I guessed it would, his thought said, even as it fluttered away and it laughed a little within him ere it fled, almost gay it seemed to be casting off at last all doubt and care and fear. This is the appeal 
of death. This is what Denethor wanted, the casting off of all doubt and care and fear, but Denethor wanted it on his own terms. This is the end of a life well served, a life well fulfilled. Pippin has kept his oath and he is dying in honour, dying in blackness and stench and crushing pain. But it's over now. He did it. He did the thing that he set out to do. And then even as it winged away into forgetfulness, it heard voices and he seemed to be crying in some forgotten world far above. The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. And for one moment more, Pippin's thought hovered. Bilbo, it said. But no, that came in his tale long, long ago. This is my tale and it has ended now. Goodbye. Pippin recalling the words. Like, what would Pippin think of at the very moment of his death? How about the greatest moment of eucatastrophe that he has ever had described to him? The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming! The end... Well, actually, you know what? I pulled the slide. Let's take a look here. I have just a couple minutes left. Let's uh, take a look. This is from The Clouds Burst, Chapter 17 of The Hobbit. The clouds were torn by the wind and a red sunset slashed the west. Seeing a sudden gleam in the gloom, Bilbo looked around. He gave a great cry. He had seen a sight that made his heart leap. Dark shapes, small yet majestic against the distant glow. The eagles! The eagles! He shouted. The eagles are coming! Bilbo's eyes were seldom wrong. The eagles were coming down the wind, line after line, and such a host as must have gathered from all the eeries of the north. The eagles! The eagles! Bilbo cried, dancing and waving his arms. If the elves could not see him, they could hear him. Soon they too took up the cry and it echoed across the valley. Many wondering eyes looked up though as yet nothing could be seen except from the southern shoulders of the mountain. The eagles! cried Bilbo once more, and at that moment a stone hurtling from above smote heavily on his helm, and he fell with a crash and knew no more. And thus Bilbo sits out the rest of the Battle of the Five Armies, right? That's just time passes, and when Bilbo awakes, well, he awakes into a changed world, I suppose. Um, and the same is going to be true of Pippin, parenthetically, right? Pippin here actually representing Bilbo's arc through The Hobbit in the context of The Lord of the Rings more fully than any other character. Pippin gets the definitive Bilbo moment, the, the recreation of, of, of the Bilbo moment here. And he is, of course, turning to eucatastrophe. He is, spoilers, he is actually hearing this. The cry has gone up. The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. He is hearing this, but he is immediately associating it with Bilbo's story, not just because of the repetition, but because of the hope that it contains. Oh no, he thinks. That's from his tale. And mine is done. Goodbye. And he falls into darkness. He falls into a darkness still with joy in his heart, still with hope in his heart. You know that giddy little laugh that he gives? So wonderful does it now seem to be lifted from doubt and fear? This is fantastic heroism. This is genuinely great heroism. And for my money, one of the most satisfying hooks that we get in the entire book. I think that the end of book five here, which, hey, we made it to the end of book five. Congratulations, everyone. The end of book five here is so resonant, so powerful, so gorgeous, and gives us exactly the propulsive push that we need to jump back in time and to go back into Frodo and Sam's experience as we move into book six next week. That's right. We're moving into book six next week. Chapters one and two of book six, The Tower of Kirith Ungol and The Land of Shadow. Next week, we're going to have an afternoon session because it feels like it's been forever since we had an afternoon session. And by an afternoon session, I mean an afternoon session here in the central time zone, a session which is more accessible to our friends across the Atlantic uh, in in Europe-friendly time zones. So that's 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central on May the 31st. That will be uh, there and back again, 65, looking at the first two chapters of Book 6, The Tower of Kirith Ungol and The Land of Shadow. And as I say that, I realize that I have absolutely run out my time. Ryan saying Alistair actually gets through all his slides is definitely going on my Point North bingo card once I actually make it. 
I, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Ryan. I can't remember the last time I made it through every single slide that I had prepared. Luckily, we had relatively few from last week to pick up with, and I didn't want to push into book six tonight. So as ever, my reach exceeds my grasp, but then it ought, or what's a heaven for? There we go. Um, good, good. Let me see as I come back here. Um, Seastar says, I'm so ready to get back to Sam, whose kind of perseverance in despair but not on the battlefield I can relate to. Can't relate to the whole of book five. I completely uh, understand that. Yeah, I think that is um, a relatively common response from readers of The Lord of the Rings, actually. I think that a lot of people struggle with... A lot of people struggle with book three, right? A lot of people struggle with the transition out to Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas and the, the, the passage west. But at least then we still have a, a constant presence from Merry and Pippin. And it's still relatively grounded through the, uh, through the events of book three. But then book five is, we just blow the doors off. This is as big, as grand, as high, as elevated, as also simultaneously deep and rich as anything that we get in the pages of the Lord of the Rings, which I think is why it is so effective that we arrive at this climax, this moment of simultaneous despair and eucatastrophe, right? The, the, the possibility of eucatastrophe so, so enticingly effervescent right there on the fringes, on the, on the very periphery of our awareness at this point in the story. And then we crash back into the very small and contained, no less grand and no less heroic and no less courageous, but the relatively small and contained experience of Frodo and Sam. Uh, it's going to be a hard tonal shift as we move into next week's discussion, but I cannot wait to get to it. And you guys, we're on the last part of our story now. We're, we're really going to get through it. That is going to do it, though. I'm afraid I don't have time to jump into the, uh, that I don't have time to uh, jump into the uh, question bucket tonight. We absolutely have to wrap up, guys. Thank you all so much for joining me. As I say, book six, chapters one and two, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, next Thursday. That is May the 31st. I hope you'll be able to join me for that. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then... Fly, you fools! Fly.